Overthinking It podcast, episode nine. I think this is nine, lucky number nine. Uh, we are here with a larger panel than usual, all assembled on Skype together. So it's a house of cards and can fall at any moment. But uh, we have with us right now Matthew Belinky. Hey, how you doing? I am doing well. How are you? I'm just peachy. Skyping in from Manhattan, New York's Manhattan Island. Yep. Not the not the setting of the Indiana Jones movie. No, not exotic enough. Uh, in alphabetical order by last name, then is uh, Peter Fenzel skyping in from Boston. Uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the his house. What's it? Uh, do you like apples? Uh, I'm actually allergic to them. Wait, no joke, you really are? No, I seriously am allergic to apples, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really unfortunate. What do you do How do you to like keep... them apples? <laughs> what do you do to keep the doctor away? Uh, he uses a taser. <laughs> he exercises a lot, actually. I, I just purchased the perfect push-up, actually, which I heartily recommend to everyone who enjoys infomercial-related exercise equipment. It, it's like the best one out there on the market right now for less than $100. What is the perfect push-up? It's a pu- set of little push-up panels that look like yeah, defibrillators that, right? that rotate. Yeah, it keeps I've you seen from that getting emotional. Yeah. Wait, and you They're bought awesome. it? I purchased it. Yes. Does it work? Does it? Is it everything you'd hoped? It is, in fact, the closest to per- perfection I can get without becoming a Calvinist. And I heard there, uh, David Schechner from uh, also from Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> what are you wearing? Skyping in from the Whitehead Institute of advanced, uh, advanced trying to dethrone God. Yeah, yeah. Soon to be the Broad Institute parking lot. Oh, really? No, no, but that's what we all joke about. They have a much larger institute, which cropped up much more recently than ours. It's right next, it's right across the street. It's the one with all the glass and things like that, right? Yeah, and and the, I mean, literally 30, 32-inch computer monitors set up with, like, some crappy art installation. All right, who's got the train outside? That, that would be me. <laughs> I'm just going to move six feet to the right right now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm living for the city over here, man. It's, it's hard in the hood. <laughs> and finally, no sleep till Jordan Stokes, Skyping in from Brooklyn. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. I may be cutting in and out for the next 10 minutes because I have a risotto on the stove and you don't want to let those burn. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, absolutely. You should be stirring constantly. <laughs> Save that for risotto week. God damn it. <laughs> We are assembled, all of us, to uh, discuss Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. This is uh, the next in our series of summer blockbuster podcasts, summer blockbusters being fertile ground for the Overthinking It blog. And in that same order, let's just go uh, through and uh, out of five whips, or if you like, a letter grade, let's rate the Indiana Jones movie. Belinky. Uh, I gotta say, I've, I've thought about this. I gotta give it, I'm gonna give it two point, two point two whips. Out of five. <laughs> yeah, out of five whips. You're gonna saw a bit of the whip off. How does the, how does the... I'm gonna give it a handle. Two whips and a handle of a whip. It's like two whips and a cat o one tail. <laughs> yeah. Well, a cat of, a, a cat o you know, one point... Just like a straight up flogger, you know. <laughs> like, or if you if you recall in Temple of Doom, there was a scene where somebody's whipping Indy, and then somebody's also whipping the child, but with a smaller whip. One of those whips. <laughs> wow. Okay. I yeah. I guess my S and M is not that advanced because I had not remembered that scene. 
Uh, Peter Fenzel. I know, these, I know these movies well. I really, I really do, and which is why, like, maybe I'm judging it a little harder than some of the other people on the panel. Well, let's see what they think. Peter Fenzel, out of five whips. A uh, solid two whipper. Two whips out of five. Yep. Uh, Had a good time. I'd say it's between Drudge, Judge Dredd, and Demolition Man in quality. Wow. <laughs> actually a little harder than I am. <laughs> I, got a, I got a dollar that says that appears on a movie poster within a week or so. <laughs> David Schechner, out of five whips. I'm actually totally in agreement with uh, with Peter Fenzel here. It's a, it's a two-whip movie. Okay. Jordan Stokes? Um, I would give it a grade of whip it, but not whip it good. <laughs> um, no, if, if, I had to, if I had to give it on the five-whip scale, I'd give it like a 3.3 or something. I'm not quite as harsh as some of these naysayers. And neither am I. I'm going to go with a three-whip out of five-whip uh, rating for me. Well, let's go to the lowest scores, Fenzel and Schechner. Why so harsh? Um, mostly because there are just a lot of much better movies. Uh, <laughs> I had a fun time watching it. Iron Man um, rocked harder. I was, I was, yeah, Iron Man is, is a better movie, and I wouldn't say that Iron Man is a four-star film. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't know. I thought it was really, really silly. Um, I mean, at the beginning, I was like, okay, they gave him superpowers. All right, whatever. And then well, what, right what around— What scene in particular are you, are you talking about that like, you feel like he was, he, he was suffering from power inflation? Uh, when he, like, leapt and cavorted his way onto the beams on top of the warehouse and, like, ran along the tops of the beams of the warehouse. Yeah, while dude, I know exactly what you're talking about. We sprinted on the beams that were, like, five feet apart. Spoiler like, alert. Yeah, like, Spo- you know what? This is – we should say that though that happens in the first scene, so – and you actually – I think you see something like it in the trailer. Uh, we're just totally disregarding anyone who has not seen the movie. So you've been warned. Stop listening now if you care to have what meager surprise there is – for eight, other, eight other great podcasts already on the site that you could be listening to right now. Yeah, and there's also the one that I'm on. <laughs> we shall reveal the secret. That's of great. Not listen to that podcast. He said he liked it. And actually, I, we, we kind of rule. So yeah, I, but no, I liked it because you guys talked about me. <laughs> Should mention that caveat. <laughs> you know that if you episode seven with the uh, summer movie preview part one. Oh, by the way, there's going to be part two of the summer movie preview uh, coming out at some point. But um, that you know, I did a real big slice and dice job on so that it's uh, you know it's a highly edited version. All the ums and the boring parts are cut out. But the Dave Schechner conversation, I just put the whole hour and 15 minutes of it on unexpurgated steaming plate of Schechner on <laughs> you know you would talk about the power inflation okay yeah and, yeah and- I gotta say this. I, like, I worked on a construction site with Habitat for Humanity for a while, and like, yeah. you do see, you do see people who can like who can run around on I beams like that. You know, like we just have to assume that India at some point spent like more than a year building houses. Harrison Ford actually, I think, worked construction or was a carpenter or something like that before he became famous. That in his uh, teens or uh, early twenties, this was one of his uh, jobs. Well, I that makes how it okay. That stunt off. What? Yeah, it does make it okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but what I'm saying is, is, isn't it like a well-established problem in comic books that like a superhero's power tend to become inflated the longer that comic book goes on, or with sequels, for instance, that like you know what, what starts what, what, out is like you know Superman, you know, starts out being able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, then he can fly, then he can like fly to other planets and like turn the world around by flying around really fast. Wait, he fly- That was in the first movie though that he turned the world around. <laughs> Right, but, but I mean, a better example is X, in X Men, uh, Storm can 
can uh, create lightning. In X Men Two, she uh, she creates, I believe, like a hundred tornadoes all at once to take out a bunch of fighter jets coming at her. So in a way, it's it's not unheard of that, like in a movie like this, where you have a larger than life character, that as the sequels, you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, he's still an outsized character, but like the things he does are are within you know the established realms of human achievement. Storm also got a much cooler haircut. Yeah, 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 she did, and and I think that may have contributed to. Well, the- Matt, you're you're almost as low as as the two whippers. So you know what was bad? Was it just power? I, I, I didn't get to say why. Oh, 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 sorry, Dave. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will point out that my, my favorite example of like uh, power inflation is uh, is uh, Susan Summers or later Susan Richards, uh, uh, Reed Richards' wife in the Fantastic Four, who could like just people, right? Yeah. Yeah, she could like be invisible for the longest time, and that was it. And then suddenly she could make force fields because people realized that like being able to turn invisible is only moderately useful. Well, people realized that being able to make lightning was kind of a shitty superpower. I mean, it's better than being invisible. I thought they were just being sexist. Yeah, maybe so. Oh, and then that, they wanted to give her force fields to make her more feministic. Can I? Can I just interrupt for a second? You said Susan Summers. Are you sure you want to go with that? Is it? I forget what her. What's her maiden name? Because she becomes Storm. Oh, it's Sue Storm. That's right. Sue Summers is the bionic woman, isn't it? Uh, maybe. I thought she was an exercise guru. Of Summers is uh, is Cyclops' last name, right? Scott Summers. Uh, uh, it's Scott Summers. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm much better versed in the X Men than I am in the Fantastic Four. God, it's mm. it's it's really difficult to keep all these things straight, though. You know. Mm. I, That's uh, why they're all alliterative. It's the only way that, that Stanley could remember all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm dead serious. <laughs> uh, there you go. But Bruce, you know. Th- Pete, I, I think if we're talking about like power escalation, I think I think the moment that we have to address is the, the nuclear fridge scene. Yes. yes. Oh God. Yes. <laughs> Where, for people who haven't seen this movie and and don't care, it was to have, lead lined. It, it was lead lined. No, but, but my objection is not on that no, 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 the, the instant before the the fridge like gets blown on the cusp of the uh, the the mushroom cloud, the the sequence that we see just before he is like being thrown out of that is a sequence where everything else in the neighborhood is melting due to the intense heat before the explosion, and like it might moderately protect him from the radiation to be inside a lead fridge, but it would literally become an oven, like a multiple you, thousand degree oven. Are you saying that refrigerators don't keep things cold, Dave? Because that's <laughs> what they're for. All right. Saying, I mean, that was the one that Ted Silver Realty provides. <laughs> hey, little tangent here. Dave, what happens when a nuclear bomb goes off? Like, what's the sequence of destruction? Okay, so what you actually have in, in the bombs from that era, you actually have, um, oh, let's see, it's 57 is the time. It's 57, so would they have been testing a hydrogen bomb? It's it's a little bit before the H-bomb. I, oh, okay. Um, for an H-bomb, you actually have a small um, fission bomb. Did we just lose Jordan? Oh, he's, he's risottoing. Um, you have, like, a small... Um, you have a small, like, uranium bomb, a small uh, fission bomb that actually, uh, like, ignites the hydrogen bomb. But that, I don't think that was a hydrogen bomb there. Um, that scene actually calls to, like, real tests that the, the government did. Have you ever watched the movie um, The Day After? Not to be confused with the movie The Day After Tomorrow. Um, they, <laughs> yeah. they use these, uh, it's, like, from the, the mid-'80s. They use some of the, uh, like, the recently declassified test footage where they literally built in, like, probably the most moribund turn of American military history before Gitmo, uh, they built, like, a full city populated by dummies out in the middle of the desert, set up a bunch of, like, remote cameras with, you know, incredible zoom lenses or a couple of them that were just relaying things remotely, and then just nuke the shit out of it to see what would happen if they nuked suburbia. And uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but it turns out... I understand how the dummies help you figure that out. 
I think it's because they're sick freaking bastards. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to see the milkman and the and the little girl on her bike get yeah. blowed up. Do you really need to dress up a dummy like as the mailman and put mail in his hand to, to connect yeah, the they, they literally you should you should totally check this movie out. It, it doesn't occur like that late into it. It's it's like just the most terrifyingly horrible thing I've ever seen. Um, and I watched the Daredevil movie. <laughs> I like the Daredevil movie. <laughs> I can't wake me up. up. Wake me up. I can't wake up. <laughs> that's Sorry. one. That's <laughs> one. That lyric is so. He sounds like he's just complaining about a problem that he has. You know, like, <laughs> I can't wake up. I gotta go to work. <laughs> <laughs> Save me. Gotta get my Cheerios on. Did we lose the? Did we lose the thread of Dave? What happens when oh, yeah. a an oh, atom, oh, yeah, yeah. So, an we, atom uh, bomb goes off? Basically, like what you have is a, is a set of um, of small dynamite based explosions that are all. Um, Held in place, they're, 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 it's basically a controlled implosion inside the bomb, much like you have a controlled demolition to like take down a building. But what it's what it's breaking down are um, a series of containers that have subdivisions of critical mass of uranium or, or plutonium or what have you. So like once the barriers are destroyed, all of the the nuclear fuel falls in on itself and achieves critical mass. And at that point, you have this just enormous release of heat, which ionizes the air around it. You you basically get just this huge fireball, um, which is then followed up by you know this giant. Um, well, I guess, I guess first you have an electromagnetic pulse, and then there's this fireball, and then there's this giant nuclear pulse of just like free neutrons. So wow. there you go. Okay. It's, so uh, that it's... so that the first the first thing that goes is all your electronics. Your lights go out. Your computer goes off. Yeah, your refrigerator stops making things cold. Decidedly. <laughs> Although then, keep in mind there was no—I don't think there was any electricity in that. Oh no, wait, there was a TV. There was a TV. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no water, but there's electricity. That, that's then, an early warning sign. If someone calls you up and asks you if your refrigerator is running, if the answer is <laughs> no, it's probably because a nuclear blast is imminent. So and get the, in the refrigerator <laughs> and inside. God damn it! So the next thing—the next thing that happens is there's some kind of heat thing yeah i mean it's I, I gotta say i'm definitely not a nuclear physicist i'm merely a biophysicist but yeah you have this extraordinary release of heat which is in a more controlled fashion that's what they use to make energy in, in like nuclear power plants right it's like when you're splitting apart atoms you get this huge release of heat and then they boil water with it and the steam turns turbines and all that uh, but in this case all it's really doing is just stripping all of the molecules of air from their electrons and maybe blowing them apart as well and you know releasing just this giant fireball into the environment okay so heat and then a force field based on yeah it's i mean we're kind of splitting hairs i mean it's like microseconds difference between the force field and the heat um yeah but as we've as we've established on this very podcast you can outcrawl the explosion down the air duct Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'll say this. Like, the time between the force field and the heat is not enough time to blog about it, but probably enough time to Twitter about it. <laughs> Except for the electromagnetic pulse, which took out your iPhone. Oh, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, oh. so this is this is a sequence earlier, early in the movie, and surviving the nuclear blast in the refrigerator is an example of power inflation. Yes, absolutely. But, but I mean, my, oh, yeah. just, just for the for the record, my real objection to that scene is it, it seemed to me that the refrigerator was tossed an incredible distance with great force. 
Yeah. You know, like, like I, it's unclear how far, but, like, it's not like the refrigerator is just sitting there and the whole town gets destroyed and then he opens it up. It's like the refrigerator flies into the air, flies, like, you know, half a mile down the road, like, well, lands, rolls over a hundred times, and then he steps out unharmed. You know, but wasn't there this problem also with Iron Man when he escapes from the cave the first time in the in the Ur Iron Man suit and, you know, goes goes way up in the air and then just essentially falls down? Geez, that's like my emerging theme for these podcasts is like uh, like guys that should be incinerated inside some metal suit of their own creation, but <laughs> totally fine. But, but you know what? Like, I, I would argue that like what differentiates the Indiana Jones series, at least, you know, the, the first the first and the third movie, maybe not the second movie so much from, let's say, the Mummy series is like a lesser degree of comic book silliness that, that like, you know, like that that kind of stuff. Well, it's supposed you know, like, to work. It's supposed to just be real. He's a real guy. He's not a he's not a superhero. Yeah, and I mean, and, and obviously, you know, he's an archaeologist. He, he's right. supposed to get. Like, he's often supposed to get by uh, or escape from these these incidents by just like uncanny luck. Yeah, right. Like the, the the rope happens to be in just the right place where he can grab, or the ledge is at the right place where he can like whip over to it and get out just in the nick of time. And like a square jaw and a good right hook. Yeah, that that'll help him too. <laughs> yeah. and, Although and, you know the whole point of the scene is that shot of him standing on the sand dune or the little hillock thing he's on, looking out at the at the mushroom cloud. Right, that's the whole point of the scene is to I, so George I Lucas. Guess, can, what is, what does that supposed to her. mean? I mean, is it is it just there because like Lucas is like, oh, it'd have it be awesome if he survived a nuclear blast? No, or it's, 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 like, the, it, the idea is that it's they're establishing the stakes of the movie. That is, this is what will happen if if the communists get power. Well, they're also are saying, they, like, like, the world is changing, you know, right? You yeah, know, that, 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 that was actually know. what I was thinking. I, is is that I guess. putting him in this new modern context, right? This yeah. re- it reminds me – it reminded me also, I guess, 24, uh, like the second season of 24 where there's a nuclear blast that yeah. Kiefer Sutherland sees, got there before Indiana Jones, and it felt warmed over, frankly. And that's, you know, that's this just – a nuclear that, blast. Yeah, that's not cool <laughs> when you get scooped by Kiefer Sutherland. Well, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the movie, uh, obviously, like, I got a lot of a Stargate vibe from the plot of the movie as it, as it went on. Jordan Stokes pointed out that, like, the idea that, that aliens uh, sort of gave technology to mankind and early civilizations worshipped them as gods was not created by Stargate. You know, I no, mean, I that, that's, that's an, sort of an... Uh, of an Earth Final Conflict vibe from it. <laughs> that there was this, like, weird race of, like, nonsensical bullshit aliens. Okay, that's... That, like, that's a whole other thing. I mean, that's a whole other thing, though. I I'd say that it's a creditable action movie, and the you know the the stretches of reality are not really beyond Air Force One, another Harrison Ford movie, or not really beyond your average Die Hard movie, you know, um, until the aliens. No, but no, just, but you know, no, that's why really, uh, that really bothered me because, like, I, I think one of the ones that really bothered me is Marion's driving the car and she purposely drives it off a hundred foot cliff, somehow knowing that it would sort of get caught in the tree and slowly lower <laughs> down to the water. I think that's the tree, like, the tree was no, an accident. No, the but tree no. was just a happy accident. It, well, what did she, she want oh, to do? No. Drive it off the cliff on purpose and, and fall? <laughs> no, she wanted the... to get in the water. No, they very clearly had uh, had the tree established earlier on, where she sort of like drives up near the edge, looks down, and sees the tree, and she kind of like smiles at the camera. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, know what no, I missed and, that. And I as the tree lowers it down, she gives like her companions like a look like "I told you so," 
And and it's just that like that's such a cartoonish moment that like certainly in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I'm gonna use as like a benchmark for like what an Indiana Jones movie should be, like nobody would have like done anything that 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 silly. And it but I mean it might have happened in a mummy movie, like I'm saying, because those movies are like it's a little more over the top and it's a little more almost comic in the in the way it portrays action. But like it, it like that kind of thing bothers me. You know when it, when it happens in this movie. Uh, another good moment is Sheila Buff uh, swinging through the vines like Tarzan. I'm king of the monkeys. That's <laughs> yeah, true. actually, that, like, that, that's so over the top that like I I stopped kind of enjoying the scene. That that was by a wide margin my favorite scene in the movie, but not but but fully ironically. Like I, I didn't appreciate that as a member of like the like it was the sort of Jar Jar Binks of the uh, of the Indiana Jones lexicon. It was like yes. you can you can appreciate this if it's referenced on a T-shirt amongst someone who knowingly hates it, but not in a genuine fashion. But yeah, but I mean, you sort of prove my point, which is that like at that point, you're not you're 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 sort of enjoying the movie as to like I can't believe that they they did that tacky thing, and not that like wow like what a cool piece of action storytelling this is. Oh, yeah. I was laughing my ass off. I thought it was hilarious. I mean, I, I had a fun time with this movie. It wasn't like a bad time. It's just not a really great movie. It's like a really silly, ridiculous kind of national treasure so quality. That, like that that fight, the duck boat fight, the you know yeah. B- Charles River duck boat fight. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not we're not talking about like me last weekend here, right? <laughs> no, the one no. in Indiana Jones. Um, I thought that was – that's supposed to be like the central action set piece of the film, right? Yeah. 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 That it's like with the with the Shia LaBeouf sword fight and – Him getting hit in the nuts. It goes on forever and ever. That's the cart ride. That's the mineshaft cart ride of this movie. Yeah, and actually, you know, one of the things that bothered me about it is like after that, there are still like forty-five minutes left in the movie, and it's actually pretty boring. If you think about what happens, they fall down a few waterfalls, they go into some sort of a temple, they get chased by some oh, guys. The cast uh, of yeah, the cast really... of the cast of Mel Gibson's Apocalypto show. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I for one was really disappointed <laughs> at how how quickly that disappears. They're, they they spend like five minutes setting up. They're wandering through a temple. It's somewhat ominous. Suddenly, guys are chasing them, and they're really sort of quickly. And perfunctorily gotten rid of by just pointing the skull at them, and, and we never like, the, the skull is is a device which points them away, much the way it did uh, hordes of flesh-eating giant ants minutes yeah, earlier. Flazy storytelling. It's like, don't introduce all these Indians if all you're going to do is just have them leave. Like, instantaneous. Can I, can I ask a question about the Indians of you guys? Yeah. Can I ask a question? So, um, at the end of the movie, the way end of the movie, the spaceship thing happens, and the whole valley fills with water. Right. Are all the Indians killed? Well, remember, they were killed before. They were all machine gunned. Oh, yeah, oh, they're all dead. The Ruskies yeah. killed. Oh, and so we're not to understand that there's, like, a whole village of them, of, like, Indian babies and Indian mommies that's, like, killed by Indiana Jones. No, they that actually – they, the, they live on the mountains. They live on top oh, okay. of the ridge. They don't live in the valley. Although, okay. if, if, you watch pretty, the closing, yeah. if you watch the credits at the end waiting for Easter eggs the way I did, uh, it says, like, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. Uh, but needlessly, many, many native South Americans were. Wait, were there, oh. Easter, were there Easter eggs at the end of the movie? I didn't stay. The, the no, closest, I yeah, I stayed as well. The closest I could find was uh, that the last thing they acknowledged was Yale University, but that was, you know, for a very select crowd of people. Right. Yeah, it's <laughs> okay. Okay. that's just an egg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like a Passover plate egg. Yeah. So compared to compared to the other Indiana Jones movies, it's not. 
you know, the supernatural aspect of this movie really bothered me. And I well, had to... Not, I mean, as opposed to the other movies, technically, the other three movies have a supernatural aspect. Well, this that's a, and that's, that's, a, and that's the thing. And I, I sort of, I realized that, and I had to wonder why this one bothered me, whereas the others, you know, the Ark of the Covenant doesn't bother me, and the Grail doesn't bother me, and even, you know, what, Hot Rocks or something that burned through the bag? Shankara Stones. I've been worried about this myself, and the closest I could come to is a matter of, like, of consistency in what they, of, like, the the nature of the supernatural element and, like, the context in which it's always placed. And that, like, he's looking for this ancient, these, like, ancient biblical things, and the source of the power is the same source as a tribe, as uh, attributed to them in the Bible. It's, like, it's God, and they're looking for these holy relics attributed to him. And it's not that, like, in this case, they're looking for what on the surface would be basically of the same ilk. It's this ancient tribal culture, and they've got these crazy artifacts that are supposed to have power. But no, it's alien. Right, exactly. The um, the intertext, like, uh, that is an analysis <laughs> of the intertextuality of the movies. It's not to, um, not to the Bible, but yeah. uh, goes instead to, like, communion. That mass <laughs> market paperback in the, you know. Well, you know, they're... Blinky and I actually know the son of the guy who wrote Communion. Who wrote? Wait, what are we talking about? You went to camp with him. You and I went to camp with. There's a kid named Andy Streber who's an old buddy of ours, or at least mine. Remember Andy Streber? I just don't know what Communion is. Oh, his father, Whitley Streber, wrote this this book that was like this autobiographical telling of of his uh, experiences being abducted by aliens. Oh, and it's called Communion. Oh, I thought we were talking about the Eucharist. The aliens are Catholic. (laughs) So it's like a famous alien abduction book? Yeah, yeah. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for like two years in the 80s. Wow. How did we not tease him about this? Um, He got very sensitive about it. As I can imagine. So in the past movies, the one of the big things for, for each one of them, all three of them, one of the central central things in the movie is each person who's looking for the artifact is looking for it for a specific reason, and the reasons really really matter a lot. Like in the you know why are you looking for the Ark of the Covenant? Why are you looking for the Shankara stones? Why are you looking for the Holy Grail? In fact, the intentions of the characters matter more in terms of what happens to them vis-a-vis the object than like actual possession of the object does. And in fact, each time uh, possession of the object passes on and it's the intentionality that's really shaped history and shaped the events and in this one like you don't need a freaking reason to look for the magical skulls because they got superpowers and like you're gonna go do it anyway and it doesn't matter so like that's part of why it didn't have any heart or soul and part of why the story didn't really drive because there wasn't the sense of intentionality to it you don't have like indiana jones indiana jones's most admirable quality was like his his sort of intention which was yes he was a scholar but like he was also an accessible scholar and like he had this real everyman quality to him versus these not Nazis and these minxes and these crazy temple people and all that other stuff. Well, yeah, what did Kate Blanchett want? What, let me ask you this. What did Kate Blanchett actually want in this movie? Well, what, what could Kate Blanchett do? Right? Well, I mean, I she, think she wanted the psychic is that she sucked, right? She's supposed yes. to have psychic powers and she did absolutely zero that was cool at all in the movie other than <laughs> having a bob haircut. Yeah, I, mean, I can't decide whether I'd like her more or less if they actually had a scene where she demonstrated she has some psychic ability. Like, mm. like, like the movies seem to be calling out for that to, to prove that, like, she actually – she's not a complete crackpot. Right. And they never did that, and I can't decide whether I would have enjoyed it had there been a scene where, like, she successfully reads, like, Indiana Jones' mind. 
Or, like, controls, like, Shia LaBeouf through, like, some magical helmet she wears. Right, and the skull only speaks to some. Like, you know, Yeah, Indy, that's really convenient, I guess. Indy and yeah. that guy, was that guy, the crazy guy, was he in the previous movies? No, no, no that was John Hurd. He was, yeah. I mean, you get the yeah, feeling think... that had Marcus still been alive, that might have been a Marcus role, and oh. you would have cared more. Because you'd be like, oh, no, the lovable guy from the previous movie has gone crazy. Marcus Brody We're... has gone crazy. Where's that like? I mean, to, to me, said, like, like, I mean, all, all the new characters did nothing for me, and especially that one where it's a character you've never seen before, and and you just you don't really he's he's just like an annoying sort of like not really funny crazy guy. Because like, I, I honestly like I, I couldn't see him without thinking that at the close of the movie he was going to go over to Britain and start a totalitarian regime. Right, because of uh, uh, V for Vendetta, right? Yeah, yes. that, that's for for now. Like that's the only way I can picture him anymore. Right. Yeah, I, I got that a little too. He had he had a bit of the same look. Where he was like you know a much better player for some reason. Uh, he of the uh, the Stephen Root character from Office Space. I kind of <laughs> yeah. expected him to, to be at a resort, you know, threatening to burn it down if they didn't bring right. him the pina colada. Picking up I on to... Pete's on Pete's point about the intentionality of different characters, are commies inherently suckier than Nazis as a villain. No, I, I don't... Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I I feel like they could have been better than they were in the movie. Let's just say that. I feel like America is very conflicted about its communist fighting past. Like, when you, when you say uh, you want to do something against the Nazis, like, we can all get behind uh, Nazi hunting. But America has done some unpleasant things in its uh, struggle against communists. And I also think as, as like, the, the income gap grows wider and wider, people are going to say, oh, you know, that Karl Marx, I mean, he had a beat on what was going on. We're not, we're not down with Stalin, but there's some ideas. There's at least a real defensible position behind communism. No one's going to say, well, you know, that Hitler guy, yeah, he took it to an extreme, but there were some good ideas there. No one's going to say that. Say what you yeah. will about the Nazis, but uh, at least they had an ethos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, also the tenets of national socialism. The tenets of national socialism. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's exactly what it is. Damn it. So here's a little <laughs> theory for you. That, you that, forget, that comes you out. forget, sir, what podcast you are on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so, Fenzel, so, I interrupted oh, you. Oh, no, no. So here's a little theory for you I'll toss you out here. Is, um, part of the reason why communists sometimes don't work as villains is the history in Hollywood of never actually portraying Soviets as Russians. Um, almost a lot of the time, Soviets are portrayed pretty much as Germans. Uh, think about even or as Nordics, even Drago. Think about um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in Red Heat. You know, think about different movies you've seen. Soviet, you know, tall, square-jawed, like very um, d- delicate features. That's not what a Russian guy looks like. Sean, a stereotypical Connor, Russian Sean Connery guy. in Red October. Exactly. You can make a Russian look like whatever you want because apparently um, Hollywood has no vocabulary for actually showing Russians. Right. And I think that's. I will say that the, probably the counterexample to this is, in my opinion, the greatest depiction of communist Russians uh, that have ever existed on, in the moving media, um, which would, of course, be Boris and Natasha from um, from. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the live action one or the cartoon? No, no, definitely the cartoon. Absolutely the cartoon. But like, Boris Spatnov actually does kind of look like most Russian guys I know. Yes. I mean, like, the only Hollywood or franchise that really hits Russians hard is, like, hot Russian chicks from from James Bond movies, you know? Like, and it's really hard to really feel that scared of them, you know? Like, like, and uh, honestly, like, uh, like, how many are actually Russian, right? 
Uh, and yeah. when you do get a Russian, it's, it turns out to be Lada Lenya, who is German and... Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, pretty much just Xenia on the top, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> right. Well, one of the things I, I noticed about the movie that, that bothered me... This is, is why... Thought, you know what? This is the difference. This is the difference between us and other blogs and podcasts, that we can pull <laughs> those things out. Like, you know, I wouldn't oh, say yeah, we that... Got, we got a magical bag of tricks. We're not, we're not at the Ain't It Cool News level of dorkiness... With like I our, am. our well, I guess so. <laughs> I, I, I can roll with those guys. <laughs> Bring yeah, out with really, Moriarty really Bring in Moriarty. You know, we should ask those guys on our yeah. podcast. I, I know Moriarty's real name. He's like Drew McWeeny. He directed uh, one of the episodes of uh, Masters of Horror on Showtime. You know what? By saying his name, you've sapped him of all his power. Yeah, you get your baby back from him now. <laughs> uh, no, I was, I was going to say, one of the things that bothered me about the movie, and I think it might be related to this, is I thought it was uh, notably less violent than any of the previous movies. Oh, and I don't fact, know about that. No, no, you get, uh, I, I, get the, the eaten alive by ants with them like, crawling under his skin. Oh, another thing. Part. You know what? Me... Mushroom Cat Cloud was done by 24. Eaten alive by ants was done by the uh, mummy. mummy. So the mummy. you've and, been and, you've been scooped by Kiefer Sutherland and by Brendan Fraser, and that's that, my friends. For an A-list celebrity, that is not company you want to be in. But well, let, I, me, let me let me point out one thing about the violence because I can I actually went online and I think I can prove this now that like we can agree that at least in the first and third movies he shoots a lot of Nazis that like he picks up a machine <laughs> gun and he'll like shoot a whole line of Nazis on uh, the third one there's like a great little comic moment where he's fighting on the tank and he fires his gun once and the bullet goes through five Nazis and they all fall down. Yep. Uh, in the this what? movie, he does not fire his gun a single time, and he does not kill a communist on purpose. No, and actually, his gun is replaced by a walkie-talkie the whole time. Yeah, no, I was going to say, it's not that bad. He pulls out his gun once and points it at somebody, but it's just to scare it away. And, and in fact, like, you can think for the movie, he doesn't kill anyone on purpose. Yes, he does. And, yeah, he kills the, the Native American with the blowgun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's the, that's Which, the only uh, guy that has a purpose. Although that's I was thinking, that's like, Hollywood that, telling us that those are not, in fact, people, is what it doesn't make any sense. The dart wouldn't be poison on both sides. <laughs> Might be. And, now, I took some correspondence courses in blowgun construction, and let me tell you, those that's things a, are not something that you want in your esophagus. That's a pretty feeble defense. That was a safety school degree, and you and I both know it. <laughs> All right, it was Dartmouth. It's a pretty feeble defense, Jordan, that's like, you don't know it's not poison on both sides. <laughs> Who elected you the Popa blowgun? <laughs> But, but actually, um, among the numerous issues this raises for me, like, uh, you know, I, I think it has something to do with the fact that Steven Spielberg doesn't even want the police officers holding guns in E.T. anymore. Of course he wants, like, Indy to be a little less – like, like you know, the, the scene in Raiders where, like, the guy pulls out the sword and, and Indy just shoots him. I mean, like, I, I don't think Steven Spielberg would let that scene get in nowadays. I don't think he wants Indy to be like, he kills a guy and, like, turns around and walks away before he even hits the ground. Uh, but it also is, is interesting to feel, um, this may be a tangent, but I feel like the PG-13 rating has gotten a little um, 
Like, you can't get away with as much over the years. That if you feel like Indiana Jones of the Last Crusade, he shoots, like, a lot of people on screen. He's, like, they're, they're blowing away some of those uh, those Arab cultists with grenades and everything and still gets the PG-13. And nowadays, I don't know if you could have that high body count without making it an R-rated movie. You know, funny story, the PG-13 rating was invented for Temple of Doom. No, because of Te- – Temple of Doom was PG, and it was because of that they created the PG-13. Hmm. Because they're Temple ripping people's hearts wait, down. Is that, like, is that the story? I thought Temple of Doom was rated R, and they were like, wait, come on, guys, we need a new rating between these two things. No, no, I, no. I mean, it was, it was what I heard, it, and, and it may be apocryphal, is that they wanted to rate it R. But I mean, back then, like Steven Spielberg, you know, I, I don't know if it's correct to say more than now, but was kind of king of Hollywood and sort of strong armed the ratings board and gave it the PG. And then the ratings board came up with a lot, they, they took a lot of flack for that. And I think there was another one that year. I think Gremlins was another one the same year and that was also pg and probably shouldn't have been um, temple of doom probably should have been r anything where you reach into somebody's chest and pull out their still beating heart is a that's a that's, that's a pretty adult situation right <laughs> if, if it's a non-essential organ it's pg if it's an essential organ it's a pg-13 now if you oh, like- yeah right, right right i'm sorry yeah of course it was pg and then it was no way is that movie a pg i was terrified of that movie when i was little Maybe I'm just I was a scared wuss. Of Roger Rabbit. What? <laughs> you were scared of Roger Rabbit? Why? Yeah, but only but he, because of the I don't sexual know. I was, content. I was a child. I was. Well, what, what part of Roger Rabbit in particular? What part of Roger Rabbit was I scared of? The movie. Yeah. Probably like the googly animated eyes of like uh, the Christopher Lloyd character. Actually, that was pretty freaky. Yeah. Also, the idea that like there was something that could kill cartoon characters kind of bothered me back in the day. Oh my god, the shoe! The shoe that got dipped at the beginning of the shoe. That was an adorable shoe, and it was terrible to see it die like that. (laughs) I think that that was said at the Sex and the City movie, too, wasn't it? Okay, we've done Harrison Ford a little bit. We've done Kate Blanchett. She sucked and could have been. I, a I, want say, I want to say one more thing about Kate Blanchett is that, at least for me on a personal level, I think it's time for Hollywood to decide on Kate Blanchett. There are three options as far as I can see it. She's either attractive, non-attractive, or Bob Dylan. <laughs> like, choose, goddammit, choose. <laughs> I think you should just stick with Bob Dylan. Yeah, pretty much Bob Dylan. I want to see Bob Dylan as Dylan in an Indiana Jones movie. Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> By the way, I thought I'd like to start out a There's something happening here and you don't know what it is, do you, Dr. Jones? How does it feel? Uh, going through the characters in the movie, Shia LaBeouf. What do we think? The beef. The beef. <laughs> I, I like him as an actor. I just feel like his character was sort of like, you know, uh, an extra from Grease. Yeah. <laughs> when he came on screen on the motorcycle, I literally laughed my ass off. Like, was... my ass fell off and rolled down the aisle of the movie theater. And I was sitting like a the giant boulder chasing our hero. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Carrying a walkie talkie. Otherwise known as tumbleweed ass. <laughs> it I don't know. I give of... him. A, I give him and that character a lot of credit for not being as annoying as I assumed they were going to be from the trailers. I know that's pretty faint praise, but uh, but still, you know, like there were no moments watching that when I was like, oh please, Shia LaBeouf, just get killed by a communist. 
know? <laughs> I, I, I got to give you credit. I, I didn't. I, I'm not the biggest Shia LaBeouf fan, but um, I think his character was horribly written, uh, and it just. I, it was just an incredibly trite character, and and he managed to not annoy the crap out of me. So, kudos to him. But, but I mean, I think we've all read the, the reports that that Lucas is is maybe thinking about a fifth Alien Jones movie, which he right. would be Shia LaBeouf would be the lead. This is what and, I was, this is what I was saying. There's a moment at the end where like he almost picks up the hat, but then Harrison Ford grabs it from him. Where it's like it's almost like the torch is being passed, the whip is being passed from generation to generation. I, I just can't see that happen. I mean, first of all, from a practical level, the kid has no uh, knowledge of archaeology, no experience with world travel. <laughs> well, no, so you, you just you just make the uh, the next movie about motorcycle repair. Right. If, if the next movie is the motorcycle diaries, then it's okay. But he's just no. He's here's just a, you know what? This is character. Not, actually, like honestly, hot. from like a screenwriting point of view, this is what I was thinking. The next movie is he's in college, and whatever he needs to pass his final exams, he learns on a crazy adventure around the world. Bill and Ted's of, Excellent Adventure. It's, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> right, it's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, but with archaeology and supernatural powers. <laughs> Why don't we just watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, because it's excellent. <laughs> it really is. It is the most accurately titled movie that I know. Uh, <laughs> Oddly, uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey, the least accurate. <laughs> that is true. It is, in fact, not bogus at all, but quite sublime and uh, and fairly sophisticated. It's a it's a fine it's a taste that requires an educated palate. Mm. I, I did not appreciate it in my youth. <laughs> you weren't familiar with the works of Ingmar Bergman at the time, <laughs> <laughs> or of Poison, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Can I ask a question quickly? Is anyone here uh, going to argue that this isn't the weakest of the four Indiana Jones movies? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. It's pretty clear. It's the... Yeah, uh, probably. I, I, I feel like we're dumping on it a little too hard. I don't think that it's, you know... I, if they came out with a box set, I wouldn't individually buy the first three to avoid getting this one. Like, yeah, I, you know what? I, I showed up at the theater. Like, Jordan, is that really the standard for this movie? That like, <laughs> would you pay money to avoid it? Well, no, I mean, <laughs> compare it to the uh, the Star Wars prequels, right? Like, I feel like those were so bad that they made the original three worse. I feel like this one is well, like. Well, and in fact, Lucas sort of... Lucas went back and made the original three worse. Fair enough. (laughs) I mean, I feel like like this one, you know, it's clearly a lesser effort. But if you view it, um, I think someone made the comment, not like on on the day, you said that you're going to think of it as fan fiction. If you look at it as fan fiction, like, yeah, you know, it's it's fine. But it's not fan fiction. It's It's the fourth Indiana Jones movie from George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Harrison Ford. It's a huge disappointment. If it was well, fan fiction, it would be very good fan fiction. But, you know, it's like they had, they had every, you know, they had 18 years and every resource in the world to get it right. And I feel like there's a completely decent chance that The Mummy 3 will be superior. Yeah, that, that's like, a more entertaining, better like, film. Oh, God, that has Jet Li in it. That's going to be awesome. Right. Like, like it's, just, it's just like this movie, I... I I found it, like, a little bit boring. Like, if you think about it, there's a couple cool action sequences in it. The plot is kind of a throwaway. The characters are, like, fairly two-dimensional. It's, like, it's not that... I don't think it's that fun. I enjoyed it. I don't know. I disagree with that. I I went to the theater, though, to have a good time, you know? And maybe you didn't. I mean, I, I feel like it is true that, like, you know... 
a, a lot of how you judge this movie depends on like the spirit that you come into it with. And I was skeptical and I remain skeptical, but I feel like at the same time, you can't disconnect this movie to its predecessors. It's the fourth in a series. And like, you know, you need to judge it in context of the, of the previous three. And it's, it is, you know, clearly not in the same league as the previous three. Yeah. And then once you get to that point, what do you do? Do you stay angry or like, I mean, it didn't. It definitely didn't offend me. You know, I mean, it's not the same league. It's not even really all that similar. It's not even much of a sequel. Um, all right, so, so let me just ask this question: Why? Why do you think the people involved made it? Did they honestly think it was going to be as good as the first three? Did they just think that it would be fun to do, and they didn't really care if it was like their strongest effort? Did, did they? they did they want, want the money? Did, did they, they just, just want, want to dominate like, the summer weekend? Just a ton of money. I mean, just, do, you, do you think that's it? Do you think they're like, if we made this fourth movie, it would be like it would break all sorts of box office records, and like that's something that's important to like. I, mean, I don't necessarily think that it's not challenging. Uh, I mean, there's different ways that a project can be challenging. I think in a lot of ways the movie was uh, uh, a feat, but not in the ways that you would consider valid if you're looking at it from an artistic perspective. Like, you know, probably there were things going on with the way that the light and the color and the CGI and all that stuff worked together that probably made George, George Lucas very happy with himself. But, like, it doesn't matter to me. Not that much. But, like, I'm sure that, that it still work, you know, and it keeps them going and it makes them money and they're not going to have too many more chances. I mean, this movie, yeah, if you take Indiana Jones out of it, is, like, perfectly reasonable as a summer blockbuster. Um, and you just throw Indiana Jones in it and it's just, like, an extra $50 million. And who's going to put that on the ground, you know? I mean, if you take Indiana Jones out of it, then, like, we're all down to, like, one whip on the five whip scale. I mean, the fact is... <laughs> You know, that, that that character and the, the music and the sort of, like, the hat and everything is, like, you know, gives – without him, it's not much of a movie. It's sort of like a, sort of a boring by-the-numbers plot. It's, like, not particularly – I mean, the action is kind of – I don't think the action was spectacular. I mean, I think that one scene is pretty good, and the, the chase through Yale was pretty trippy to watch. But like, right. you know, that's how they cut right yeah. when they're about to look at the album pan. It's like shit. And like, yeah. <laughs> it's like we can't Again, the parking that's for a very small select crowd, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, we'd have to get rid of the whip scale altogether because it would be a little creepy if it were not an Indiana Jones movie and you were judging. No, I, th- I think we should actually, when we grade movies in the future, we should continue to use the whip yeah, scale. I completely. <laughs> All right, I'm overruled. Karen Allen <laughs> as Marion Ravenwood. What do we think of the return of Marion? It was sort of anti She's well. I mean, first of all, she's supposed to be this sort of woman of action. That the first time we see her, she's in her like her own bar in the middle of Nepal, winning a drinking contest against like this giant guy who's like you know. And so, I mean, she's supposed to be like a badass. And I don't know if she has that same sort. I'd almost rather that like she comes to the jungle and rescues him, you know. And th- and then he remembers how much he loves her. You know that I felt like it was a little bit anticlimactic having her in the movie that she was just there to sort of like. I don't know. Nah, didn't do it for it me. But of, like, it was I, the best fan service, I think. I think it was the best fan. Oh, no, the, the best fan service in the movie was the scene where he's sitting at his desk and he's looking at the picture of Sean Connery, which really got to me. I really love that that shot where he's that just like looks at it. That, that elicited laughter in the theater when I saw it. Yeah. And, and yeah. Just me. <laughs> how about, uh, how about for fan service, that thing at the beginning where the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant shows up for, you know, just a minute? Yeah, yeah. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Well, that's you, where their story uh, is. I mean, it makes it makes sense that it's there. That's where they store it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> where do you put your in terms stuff? Of... <laughs> where do you put your stuff? Yeah, come on. <laughs> a giant bunker in the desert somewhere next to a nuke. 
You know, I just, I just want to mention one thing about fan service. I'm actually a big enough fan of these movies that I've thought about what I would write if I were writing my own Indiana Jones movie. And I decided one detail I want to put in. Do you remember at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark when uh, Belloc shows up and takes the fertility, the gold fertility item from him? And he's like, too bad the Jovitos don't know you the way I know you. And Belloc is like, yes, too bad. You could warn them if only you spoke Jovitos. I always thought it would be amazing if it just sitting in his office in a future movie reading a book that's like like you know Jovitos, like a basis of the language and grammar structure <laughs> like, I thought that, that would be amazing fan service if he's just like like and it just shows that like he's like such an amazing scholar and it's just like he's not going to make the same mistake twice he's I've, I've thought way too much about this character <laughs> totally what uh, what would you have done if you were going to be writing your plot for the uh, I thought, and, and, and this is not an original idea it's been kicked around in the net I like the idea and I was very disappointed in this movie that they went to the warehouse but they didn't bring back the Ark of the Covenant I would at least have this movie start with the uh, the revelation that alright I mean if you guys are curious my, my Indiana Jones movie would be it would have a similar scene at the beginning then he meets the US government and they're like and, and he's like I don't understand how did the Russians know about the Ark of the Covenant and and then the the uh, the government is like does the name Abner Ravenwood mean anything to you and he's like yes he was my mentor at the University of Chicago but he died back in 1936 and they're like no Dr. Jones he didn't like we all believed he was dead in fact his own daughter believed he was dead but in fact he was on an expedition in Siberia and the Russians took him prisoner held him in a gulag and we believe that he's turned and his helping them now to hunt down some, you know, and, and so it becomes this sort of like, he has hired by the government to take down his former mentor, the Abner Ravenwood. It could be the John Hurd character. He's like, he would be in his mid-70s. That gives him a great excuse to get back together with Marion. He doesn't want to get back together with her. It's sort of bad memories for him. But the government is like, look, you two know Abner Ravenwood better than anyone. You have to, like, figure out what artifacts he's planning to get and get there before he does. And then, of course, by the end of the movie, it turns out that Abner Ravenwood is a double agent and the three of them, like, go together again like a Russian bad guy would be a better Russian bad guy but I like the idea of like bringing it home having it be about the Ark of the Government having it be about like you know and I thought a great replacement for Sean Connery would be his his teacher the guy who taught him about archaeology and the guy who like you know like his hero you know this Abner Ravenwood character is mentioned but never seen that that would be my Indiana Jones movie it's also a fantastic name Abner Ravenwood yeah Yeah, (laughs) so perfect I'd have him be recruited to go to a wizard school where he would have to compete in a variety of competitions, including in a, a really obscure and complicated broomstick variant of soccer. <laughs> yeah, I'd have him trapped on a bus that couldn't slow down. <laughs> uh, I would have him um, in the future decide to go into law enforcement and lose most of his body in a horrible accident and be augmented with cybernetic parts so that he had to become... Part man, part machine, okay. all, all right. Indiana Jones. No, I got it, I got it. He eats nothing but McDonald's for 30 days. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, yeah, I'd have Indiana Jones trapped in a concentration camp, and he has to choose between which child. <laughs> That's horrible. It's like his whip in his hat, and what is going to be destroyed. <laughs> it's, it's, he's called Indy's Choice. Indy's Choice. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like a giant geek because I answered the question seriously and I clearly missed the <laughs> I feel I feel bad. I feel like I take India a lot more seriously than anyone else and maybe I should like read a book or two. No no, I think it creates a fun dynamic. Well there's yeah, a bunch I... of Indiana Jones novels out there, Matt, if you want to read. <laughs> 
I guess so, so here's, here's the question that, that I'm ill-equipped to answer myself, but I'm, I'm hoping at least maybe Belinky would, um, which is like, is this movie better than like the best episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles? I mean, this movie is different than the Young Indiana Jones. The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, maybe to a too large extent, um, hinged on sort of like actual historical figures like Indy would run into. It's like, Indy has brunch with Pablo Picasso and like... Yeah. Indy- Hey, like, actually, do you know the scene in this movie where Indy is talking to Shia LaBeouf and mentions that he rode with Pancho Villa? That's yeah. an episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles that he's actually referring to. I actually uh, uh, <laughs> I, I haven't seen the show. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's an okay show. It's not the greatest show in the world. But, I mean, to, to tell you the truth, like, if, if I wouldn't mind, and I know this, you know, Harrison Ford is so Indiana Jones that it seems like suicide. But I'm sure it seemed like suicide to have another person play James Bond after Sean Connery. I wouldn't mind, like, they find, like, a new young actor, and they have, like, the younger, like, Indiana Jones during, like, the 20s. When he's, like, you know, he's sort of, like, maybe a junior professor or, like, you know, he's in his young sort of globe hopping days before he became like really famous as an archaeologist. Um, I, I wouldn't mind seeing, cause I feel like a part of it is the fifties. It seems a little too late to believe that there are corners of the world that are completely unknown and unexplored. You feel like by the time you get to the fifties, the world is sort of a smaller place. Actually, it's, it's funny you say that because like a new tribe in the uh, Amazon rainforest was discovered like a year ago. Oh, yeah. No, I, I actually just remember reading about that, that. There's some great footage of like a helicopter taking a shot of that. <laughs> them like like pointing spears at the helicopter. Like they'll come any closer. Bird yeah, they, are, <laughs> they are not uh, happy to meet us, apparently. <laughs> No, well, I mean, and they, they shouldn't be. They're going to be poked and prodded. And, yeah, like, I mean, would you be happy to meet us, knowing everything that we do? I'd be happy I'm to meet Jordan. We're pretty awesome. They're going to be they're gonna be wearing, like, uh, New England Patriots Super Bowl shirts <laughs> in about two months. <laughs> the perfect yeah, like, season, 18 and 1. You know, I bought that hat. I bought that hat online the night that the Patriots lost, and the Models has still not sent it to me. They They're going to be able to they, retire on that pretty soon. They claim they do not have it in inventory, and they cannot send me my Patriots championship hat. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I was going to get it for my dad, too. It was going to be a really sweet gifts, But no, they decided to go give it to some poor people in Africa instead. Your dad would probably like the winning Patriots season more, though. Uh, well, my dad's a Giants fan. Oh, yeah, never mind. <laughs> I'm from New Jersey. This has been the Overthinking It.com podcast. Yes, it's Indiana Jones. <laughs> That's my Kate Blanchett. Was, was that your Kate Blanchett as yeah. Bob Dylan as a Russian? I'm Galadriel. Uh, I'm Queen Elizabeth. Did <laughs> uh. you make a, like a Rolling Stone joke and tied into the boulder rolling after Indy from the first movie? Oh, we missed that. How do we possibly miss that? <laughs> <laughs> throw me the idol. I'll throw you the wind. <laughs> I was throw all like. I was going to go for, like, Tangled Up in Blue Vines. <laughs> tangled Up in Blue Snake Pit. <laughs> uh, blonde on Blonde on the Ark of the Covenant. In a <laughs> and Peter Fenzel, thank you for joining us. I have push-ups to do. Good night. <laughs> David Schechner. We called the dog Indiana. <laughs> and the greatest uh, Indiana Jones enthusiast of them all. Matthew Belinke.
Let me let me just tell you how my Indiana Jones movie would end. He would still get he'd still get married exactly the same as he does in the movie, right? But instead of the last scene being them walk out of the church, they walk out of the church, they get into the back of a sedan, and a twenty seven year old Chinese man turns around and is like, "Where to, Doctor Jones?" He's like, "The airport, short route," and step on it, and that's the last shot. <laughs> they, I am Matt Rather. Jordan Stokes was apparently making one hell of a risotto because he had to. <laughs> jump off the Skype uh, Soto of the Crystal Skull <laughs> but you can find us at www.overthinkingit.com stay tuned for Karate Kid Week upcoming and uh, stay tuned for more podcasts about summer blockbusters as they come thanks very much for listening bye now <laughs>